Are you an ambitious, driven entrepreneur starting to feel overwhelmed, maybe a little trapped by your business? Well, I have a solution for you. It is the five-day bottleneck to breakthrough challenge, where in an hour a day, we will give you the roadmap, the blueprint, the treasure map to where you can find yourself with more free time, more freedom of money, and a more valuable business. Hope to see you soon www.bottlenecktobreakthrough.com. There is a lot of talk about technology these days and whether you're thinking about a technology startup or using more technology in your business, this episode is for you. We are going to talk about the value of curiosity, how developers are like musicians in a band, and when do you need a chief technology officer and what do they do? Why do you need them? All the good stuff. Enjoy. This is The Real Bottom Line, where we tell entrepreneurial stories about true grit and perseverance from frontline business owners themselves. Now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome to The Real Bottom Line. My guest today is Maxine Kramer of Menenia, and she's joining us from across the pond in UK. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Wendy. I'm so excited to be here. I am thrilled to have you because we're going to talk a lot of tech today. So that's very exciting to me. Um, I like to think I know the 30,000, but we're going to go down a little bit uh, into the into the closer into tactical side of things too. So it's exciting. Mm-hmm. Have you always loved tech? Like I saw you were a developer when you started your career. How, like what make, what drew you into that field? It's really funny because obviously right now there's so much focus on STEM and women in STEM and getting like young girls into it. And um, really the, I think the way I got into it was just, I wasn't corrupted yet. So I, I basically was five. We got a computer. It was 1995. It ran on windows 95. And um, you know, I was just really intrigued. I was a curious kid. I was a stubborn kid and uh, my parents were very open to me trying anything really. And so I was like, what is this thing? How does it work? How can I make it do really cool things? Turns out I was pretty good at making it do cool things. And so I think before school, et cetera, had a chance to change my perspective on what I should like, if you will, Mm. into it. So by 11, I was was making websites. I was teaching like seniors how to get online, (laughs) which was quite funny, which I don't know if that's actually the right way to say it. Um, But, you know, elderly people who basically were new to the internet and were a bit like, how do I use this? Because, you know, life is starting to demand us to to use it more and more. But I had lots of different interests in school. So I wasn't quite sure if I was going to do tech. Um, And my teachers, quite frankly, were like, oh, you shouldn't do physics. You shouldn't do advanced math. Uh, or anything like that. And I was like, well, this is where I'm stubborn, right? I'm like, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> so I, I kept my options open and ultimately did decide to study computer science, uh, but still didn't think I was going to be a developer. Oh, that's interesting. What, uh, what, what put you over into the developer camp? What was the, what was the turning point? <laughs> uh, the turning point was quite frankly, Steve Jobs. Because um, yeah. he, you know, the iPhone, the iPhone came out while I was at uni. And uh, suddenly, you know, I even despite everything, right, despite being um, into computing from a young age, I still thought developers, I will, you know, effectively sit in a basement for a year and be heads down and make this thing and ship it on a CD. And I I don't want to work on Excel. You know what I mean? But the iPhone really changed things because here I could make stuff that people could put 
into their pocket, use every day, bring with them on the journey. Like it really restored, in my opinion, the human element to technology. And I saw so much opportunity to create things for people and not just tools and, you know, productivity stuff that like, I, I love productivity, but like, like I said, I wasn't into building Excel. And so for some bizarre reason, I stayed in tech after I graduated. <laughs> so the iPhone was your gateway drug <laughs> and to the app store. So it seems like, cause you app, the app store and apps really changed the world, didn't they? It made it so that people who maybe weren't fully in the basement at that level could build stuff. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and I, you know, I, to be honest, I think Hollywood has done us a massive disservice. Like mm. the IT crowd does not sit in the basement, even though they do in the TV show, right? Um, yeah. Even the the highly skilled developers that I know today that aren't necessarily working on the front end features that people kind of interact with, you know, they they see daylight. They they have a nice setup. It's all good. It's all. Good. <laughs> they they follow. They've uh, followed on this vitamin D craze. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So you started as a developer and now you're kind of like a thought leader for women in tech and building all that stuff, but there's a journey in between there. What are some of the lessons you learned going from developer to kind of a leader in the space? It's interesting because I, again, I was curious and I was stubborn. I think those are the two things that served me, to be honest, mm -hmm. um, because I remember one of my first main uh, roles was at SwiftKey where I worked on an app that got a million downloads on launch. It was a, a really amazing project I was fortunate enough to be part of. And what was interesting is that for th we had three months to build that. And I won't go into all the details, but it was like a very specific setup that was extremely rare. And it rendered my team almost as a mini startup within a startup to, to kind of get that product done. And so it was all hands on deck. And I immediately found a subcategory of things I was good at, which was development, but also user research, UX design, prototyping, making sure that what we were creating was usable by people and loved by people. And so that was amazing. I felt in my element, I was really, really um, contributing, right? There was a good alignment of skills, challenge, and, and passion. Afterwards, things kind of went back to normal. And so I didn't have the same opportunity to be as involved in the shaping of the product and like, why do we do things and why are we building them? And I remember I was trying to transition into this hybrid role where I would sit both in the design team and both in the, the iOS development team. And it was just not understood. <laughs> like the head of engineering was like, I, I don't get this. Like either you report into design or you report into engineering. And if you report into design, we can move you over, but you'll get a pay cut and you won't be able to basically um, ship, as we say in, in the industry, we won't be able to, you won't be able to produce any code that will be used because we can't okay it because we can't use it because you're not an official developer in the dev organization. Mind you, this is a startup of 150 people. It's not like 50,000, right? And I'm just saying there being like, well, what have you paid me the last couple of years to do if you're now not going to let me do something that's highly valuable, by the way, to your company? And so Long story short, coming back to your question about lessons learned, um, I love doing multiple things. Turns out as an entrepreneur, <laughs> you need to be able to, you know, harness multiple skills. Eventually, yes, you're going to hire people into the business to do all kinds of stuff, but 
you know, even that in itself then becomes a new skill. How do you hire? How do you train people? How do you vet them? How do you make sure that this is all going correctly? How do you build culture? Like you are always building skills. And so the fact that I was curious and stubborn and like to learn lots of things, I think kind of served me well. And I didn't realize that at the time. I didn't like that experience didn't make me think, oh, I should be an entrepreneur. <laughs> but looking back at it, I'm like, huh, the, the, the kind of hints were there. <laughs> what I find so fascinating about, I think about, I've been an entrepreneur for a long time now, but I think about the jobs I did have. And I always felt they were like the grounds of where I learned what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do mm-hmm. in building. And so what I also find fascinating from your story is how even in small companies, how quickly the siloing happens where there's no conversation or work back and forth, it seems, between different functional departments. Exactly. Um, we were conversing. It was just more like where to place me was a complete mystery. Right. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, now that I have my own company, I also understand because in a way you want people to contribute something that is part of your plan and your vision. But Mm -hmm. I also think, you know, prototyping, because I eventually got a job also as a design technologist where a lot of people ask me, what's that? And basically that is funnily enough, exactly what I wanted. It was being an engineer, but you sit in the design team and you prototype everything such that what you end up investing in, like that you get a whole tech team to build out is actually what we want and need um, because you've tested this with the prototype. And so, you know, that is actually saving you huge amounts of cost. And, but most people don't see it that way. They think, oh, well, if I'm going to pay you, I'd rather you work on the real product at the end because that's real stuff that we're going to use, which I get that, but they, most teams do best when they have this kind of, prototyping person there and um yeah it's just it's um you know different schools of thought I suppose so that they didn't see it that way at the time it feels like it's like the practicality of I have this great idea and then you have someone else on the team then go well let's try and make it and see if it'll work before you go and spend all the money making it and find out it doesn't work exactly 100 percent awesome um couple of terms you used Maxim that I'd love you to clarify for people Mm -hmm. UX, what is it and why is it important when we're thinking about anything, you know, apps, software, tech? Great question. So UX means you user experience. It's a um, fairly new term. It's a fairly old concept before people referred to it as uh, HCI, human computer interaction, mm. uh, which is indeed how do people and computers and robots and all of this stuff, how should they interact? Um, I love Don Norman and his book, uh, The Design of Everyday Things. Uh, Mm -hmm. It goes beyond just tech. It's also about doors. His big pet peeve is door handles because it's never clear (laughs) if it's a push or a pull door. An object should be designed in a way that it is self-explanatory how to use it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can obviously bring these concepts straight over onto uh, technology because how often have we tried to use a product and been extremely frustrated (laughs) with how it went? Yeah. I talk, I think about it I, in the layman's term is how intuitive is it to use? Exactly. I think of ver- something with a really good UX or user experience has thought exactly through how I want to, how, what I'm trying to do and how I will think through it so that it's easy to use. Exactly. And in order to do that, right, you really need to understand kind of exactly what you said. How does the other person think? So what's their mental model? What's their construct? 
What is it that you've kind of displayed or shown to them? What are the typical conclusions that they're drawing? And so how can I make it as easy as possible for them to progress? Like you say, intuitive, such that to them, to the user, it doesn't feel like thinking. It doesn't feel like effort. Yeah. Uh, And you can just use it and enjoy it. Get the benefit. There's some vehicles out there that could really benefit from this. Um, uh, One of the things that comes up for me a lot, or I've done some reading on, which I adore, is the concept of agile methodology. And it's it's been um, in the software space, I guess, for a while, but I think it has broader applications. What's your interpretation of that methodology and how do you think people could be using that? So it's a it's a very interesting question because um, I, I have I'm in two minds about it. I love the principle of agile, hundred yeah. percent, which by the way, is iterative work. So you build something to an extent, you get feedback from people. So either you release it to the public, you do user research or whatever, you gather data and you use that data to inform your next steps. So what you're not doing is sitting in a hideout space for years on end, building something that you think is the next best thing, right? And you bring it out and everyone's like, yeah, I don't care. And so you've just wasted all that money, time, effort, et cetera. So it goes kind of back to that prototyping principle, the iterative principle, et cetera. Perfect. That being said, um, so Agile and Scrum, like there are a lot of these like proper methodologies right now and, and people training those. And I think they're extremely helpful frameworks but oftentimes misunderstood and wrongly deployed in teams, specifically legacy companies who think, oh, we should do things the modern way. And so they'll get a couple people in to do this. And that doesn't necessarily solve how the team builds products. Mm. And so the mindset is great, but you, you need everyone on the same page for it to really work, I think. So it's not something you can just layer on top and think it solves the world. I think exactly. is what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like a deep-rooted philosophy almost that you have to change how you think a little bit in order to truly adopt it and utilize it correctly. Exactly. Why do you think it's so important? Like we've talked, we've we circled this subject a little bit on the customer side of things and the customer research. Now, I think a lot of people would understand customer research from a marketing perspective. Is the customer research we do when we're, we're building software or apps or user experiences and technology different? Yes, it's adjacent, but different. I think when you're thinking about marketing, right, you're thinking about why are people considering this product? What is going on in their life? Why would they need this product? Um, And how do I best talk to them? What's their way of phrasing things so I can really speak to them and say, hey, this is the best thing since, you know, etc. So it's almost like a buying decision versus a using decision? It's a buying decision versus using, right? Exactly. So marketing thinks about, okay, why are you buying this? That is also very relevant to um, deciding what you're going to build. But once you're building it, the the other question becomes, how should it work? Mm. How can you create something such that it achieves the goal that the the marketing team spent so much effort on (laughs) trying to tell the user that they're going to get, right? And then they get it. And then they're like, well, how do I now do that? And so that depends on what the expectation of the user is, what their previous experience is, which depends again on the segment that you're targeting, uh, what their existing concepts and ideas are about this. And so how do you then design a product that satisfies the goal? And it's intuitive to use, as you said, 
and works the way as expected or beyond expected, right? Because there's a level of innovation there as well that you're bringing to the table that the user may not have thought of, mm. but it needs to fit with their way of thinking and doing stuff such that they can actually use it. That's fascinating to me. So now you're in this space where you're particularly focused on women founders of startups. Why, why, that, why that segment? Great. Um, couple reasons. Uh, one story and one, I guess, conclusion from the story. <laughs> um, I, I was talking to, so as I was being a developer, running around London, doing stuff, I managed to talk to a lot of founders and specifically a lot of women founders because they uh, would reach out to me as a female engineer thinking that's the solution. The problem being that they felt that it was a real challenge to get technology built. Um, they found that there was a lot of lingo in the industry, understandably so. Um, and, and quite frankly, that quote unquote, the guys just didn't get it. These were really established women. They had impeccable careers, but they were new to the tech industry. And what I noticed in those conversations was a couple things. One, the fact that um, we as an industry should be doing better. Secondly, that once you can communicate and express yourself confidently, a lot of things go better. So communication is key and, and both parties need to improve on that. Like I said, we as an industry can do better. And ultimately as well, you know, tech is no longer an option. It just is like, and all of us need to get on board in some way, shape or form. And here we've got incredible women trying to build really required products in this world. And they're facing additional barriers, which quite frankly, in my opinion, is unacceptable because, because tech is no longer an option. It just is, you know, but it's only created by a very few, you know, select few set of people. That's going to be an issue in the long run. And so how can I contribute to a world where tech is effortlessly created by the diverse people that it aims to serve? That's the vision that we're trying to contribute to here at, at Menenia. And so that altogether led me to focus specifically on, on female founders. Your business is making a profit. You're growing, but you may still feel like you don't fully have a grasp on how to make the best use of this success. Don't worry, you're not alone. Hi, I'm Wendy Brookhouse, creator of the Total Wealth Accelerator and host of this podcast. I've developed a quick and easy tool that will give you a detailed snapshot of where you're currently at in your business and wealth growth and how you can improve upon it. It's called your financial diagnostic score. It's completely free and you'll instantly get the results. So head over to TotalWealthScore.com right now and see where you can focus to grow your wealth. It feels like you may have the same issue in your industry as I do is that um, we have our own language mm -hmm. and that language, when you've been in it for a while, you fall into it quite naturally. And then you need to somehow pull it out when you're talking to people who aren't in the industry, i.e. clients, <laughs> etc. And so, but it's that journey of also bringing client language, like the clients need to learn the language to some extent to feel more literate and more confident when they're having these conversations. So I feel like there's some, there's some, you know, parallels there between the two industries. Absolutely. I don't, I don't think tech is, is unique in that at all. It's just, it's funny because I think uh, tech is something we're all very exposed to very suddenly. It's risen very suddenly. And, you know, people think, great, I'll jump right in. 
and then suddenly feel like, oh gosh, what is going on? Like, <laughs> and hit, be hit with that jargon quite, quite significantly, quite quickly. Be, um, when I think about building a product, building a solution for a client or something, mm-hmm. um, what is the journey to do that? Like what, if I, I have, a, oh my God, I have this amazing idea and I'm going to do a startup. What do I have to do, Maxine? What are my steps to building that product? What do I need to know? It's funny because if you would have asked me this question a couple of years ago, I would have said, Wendy, this is what you do. Step one, step two. Um, And now I'm like, it depends because um, there is so much that goes into a successful startup, right? Marketing, we spoke about earlier, is one of them. Um, Quite frankly, how are you going to pay for all of it? So fundraising, right? That's where a lot of people think to start. Uh, Building a tech product, which is kind of my jam, is one of them. And so... (laughs) There's no real one cookie cutter way. I, I will give you an answer, by the way. It's just, I, I want to prefix this with, there, there are a lot of different angles and lenses to take to this. Ultimately though, you, you have to build something people want. Mm-hmm. And so product market fit is often talked about. Um, but so do the customer research in whichever way, whichever lens you take on that, definitely just keep talking to people. Get the data gathered such that you have a much better understanding of the person that you're trying to sell to. Um, there is a, a theory around jobs to be done, which I find fascinating. Um, and I saw you already did, <laughs> did one on that. So we'll just refer to that, that yeah. episode. Um, but it is indeed very much so like, what, what value are you adding to someone's life or a business or enterprise, you know, if you're B2B? Step two, how do you realize that value? right? Is it a mix of service and product? Is it product? If so, is it a tech product? And now if you're in the tech, subsection of it, then how do you build that tech product effectively, robustly, quickly, on budget, et cetera. And that comes with its own challenges and so on. Absolutely. Um, In the startup world, I kind of have, I have friends, I have clients in the startup world. And one of the first things that we hear talked about is, is the uh, CTO, chief Mm -hmm. technology officer. And it feels like it's become this for us non-techies, the solution to everything. Um, what is that role? Why do I care? And when do I need them? So typically, if you are building a tech startup, you'll need a CTO. And so I think as a CEO, you're responsible for the division. Typically in tech startups, you're responsible for fundraising if you are choosing the VC route. And of course, you have other people on the team like a CTO, a CFO, a COO, etc. CEO for your operations and scaling and hiring and, and day-to-day systems and, and all that, your CFO for your financials and your CTO for your tech team. They do more than just manage a tech team, right? They work with you to set the vision, um, to advise on the technical feasibility of everything. Mm-hmm. They know who they need to hire, what kind of skills are required, because a common misunderstanding as well is, is a software engineer isn't a software engineer. There's a lot of variety <laughs> in the space. Um, and, and so there's a whole host of things they can do. The mistake I often see people make is getting fixated on the CTO because the, the founder or the CEO or the original person, if you will, is not technical. And so they think, okay, if I get a CTO, all my problems are solved. And that I think is a mistake for a couple of reasons. A, it isn't always easy to find a CTO. And so if you're delaying everything until you found the perfect person, that may take a while. Secondly, you may not think to hire a CFO in your company straight away. And 
you still do your own basic accounting though. You still, as a founder, have to understand profit and loss. Like, how do I make profit, (laughs) right? You still need to think about cash flow. There's certain fundamental concepts that you just cannot ignore. And I find it very similar in technology where, you know, you, a lot of people, they go straight to a developer and they say, I want you to build this. And, you know, given that you are the one who knows how to do this, I will just trust you, go build it and let me know when you're done. But there are so many decisions then that a developer makes that actually massively impacts the health of your business that if you as a founder are clueless about, it puts you and your business in jeopardy. And so, you know, it's not on you to suddenly become a CTO or become a developer, but there is a certain level of abstraction where it's really helpful to be in the know, in my Mm. opinion. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that where you, is that the, where you spend the bulk of your time? Is that the, your mission is to help in particular female founders get that amount of knowledge? Yes, exactly. Okay. If, um, and I know you've built a course around this, which we'll put an access to in the show notes today, but what are, what are the modules that you cover in that course? Cause I think that would really outline some of the things that you need to know as a CEO or founder of a tech company building product. Exactly. So the course is for early stage founders who are working on their first iteration of the product. Um, And it does assume that you've done a level of validation and customer research. Why? Because I think there's so much out there that covers that really, really well. Mm -hmm. So now that you have some idea of, of what you're trying to do, how do you now encapsulate that in a way that other people can work from? Mm -hmm. How do you decide the best technical strategy for this product. How do you decide who to hire and how to vet them? Uh, And then once you've got them on board, how can you set process up such that you're working together effectively, right? And in an agile manner, as we spoke about earlier, such that you're getting frequent insights so you can course correct. Because again, as a founder, if you say, hey, I'll see you in six months when you've built it, that's a very difficult position to be in because what if they've not built what you had in mind? Um, yeah. So that's really roughly what it is. And um, yeah, I can go into a couple interesting points in there if you like, but. Yeah, um, uh, I do that. I have, an, I, I have a thread of a question that's in my mind that I have, to, I, have to, I have to pull the string first. So Maxine, tell us a story while I'm trying to pull that string. Great. Uh, the one that I find really fun is uh, just the sheer amount of developers that are out there. We, we spoke about this briefly earlier. And the analogy I tend to draw is developers are um, like musicians, for example, right? And you're putting together a band. So you don't need 10 drummers, right? Mm. <laughs> but also um, a very skilled drummer may be able to play piano, but they're only skilled in maybe one, maybe two instruments, right? They're not going to be able to do every single job in the band. And also a drummer for a jazz band is very different from a drummer to a rock band. And so that's the level of different skills that you find in, um, in the development space, just like you wouldn't hire a sushi chef to open a you know, French bakery, both extremely skilled chefs, right? And, and very capable of what they do. And they can probably learn it quicker than the person off the street. Absolutely. But it is not their specialty. You're reminding me a little bit of um, an analogy I have sometimes when I think about, hey, I'd really like someone who could copyright, who knows how to distribute my social media, also knows how to edit videos, also can stay on top of all the algorithms. Also, and maybe they can do my accounting, Max, because that's what I need all done. And I feel like, um, 
I was talking about this to somebody I know, and he said, you're looking for a unicorn. And I feel like sometimes we don't, if we're coming in, coming in cold into this, we don't know that there is somebody who does user experience in a massively awesome way, but can't code on the back end to give it earn. And so I think we forget that those things, those particular skill sets need to be brought around the table. I love your band analogy. Thanks. And and it's exactly that. And I, I love the example you gave because, you know, we think marketing is marketing, right? Like yeah. and social, same thing, right? And someone who's in that space is like, ah, uh, no. <laughs> and, you know, you get, what you typically get is you get someone who's really good at one or two things and they can do a couple of the other things. And it's the yeah. same with technology. It's just, um, that might be great for your very first version, but at some point you need a robust team such that it can handle the the volume and the you know whatever load you're going to put on the product that is your ultimate goal yeah well i think that is fascinating about the whole building of the product piece um you're right the the founder the startup the ceo has to wear so many hats in many ways they're kind of expected to be the unicorn from at the start mm-hmm. and then they have to bring in the talent in a in a very um logical and important uh, thing and it's the same one so is the cto the first hire or is it where do they where do they fall in that priority list or does or are we going to use the it depends (laughs) no i would say they if you can get one who is amazing you gel well and you bring them on almost as a co-founder i think that is amazing right if you got one Congratulations, because it is very difficult to find that role. And, and I think it's amazing if you can. What I, the reason I, I kind of teach what I teach and so on is also, A, it's helpful to know regardless, uh, which isn't necessarily a reason to do it because, again, priorities. But if you're always waiting to get the CTO and you don't build anything, that's the danger. And so there is a way of what, how do I phrase this? What people then do is, I'm fed up with waiting to find this great CTO. I'm just going to hire a developer. And that comes with its own danger because um, a developer is a bit like a builder or an electrician. I know I've compared them to all kinds of things now, but imagine you're trying to build a house. You need an architect. You need a blueprint. You need something that a builder, electrician, a, a plumber, et cetera, can read from such that they can do their job extremely well, right? They yeah. are extremely skilled at what they do, but it is a piece of the puzzle. And so it's hard to then find a developer who say, oh, I know all of that. I mean, sometimes you find them, right? I'm, I'm kind of a product-oriented developer, for example, and, and there are tons out there, but you have to be lucky with that. And typically what ha- ends up happening is if you do find that person, they effectively become the CTO. They're the first developer hire. They grow into that role, et cetera, et cetera. But do you want it to be a toss of the coin in terms of who you end up working with? That's, that's the challenge. And so I think if you can get a CTO, yes, and always keep an eye out for that, always be networking, always be uh, spotting that opportunity. But if you notice that you feel it's holding you back from building it, you can look into building it. You just have to be very particular then about your first developer hires. It's almost like, the, I, I'm going to go back to your house analogy, so we don't go too far back in analogies, but it's like the general contractor role. Right. So a lot of people are general contractors for building their house and they know they get the they get the plumber, they get the electrician, they get the drywallers. And it seems like the CTO might be the general contractor that you bring in, but doesn't mean you can't be hiring and working with uh, all those folks along the way and then bring them in later. 
exactly. And they may be looking for something that's a little further and more proved before they hop on board. I think that's the other thing, right? Like what's in it for them? Um, you often see this dichotomy of like, oh, I've got the idea and it's so valuable and, and it can be extremely valuable, but until it's real, it's just an idea. And if the CTO say is the quote unquote only person that can make it real, you know, what's their incentive then to, to join? And it could be mission-based, it could be uh, compensation-based, which most people, again, at the start don't have. Um, it could be tons of reasons, but that's a very real conversation to have. And so indeed, if you've already given it a stab, if you've already started moving the needle, it's more attractive to investors, CTOs, other team members. You know, traction is just such a uh, important metric for, mm -hmm. for the other people. So I'm going to circle back a little bit to where we started to bring this full circle. Yeah. If, if I'm a person who's a little scared or um, a little bit um, standing to the side on the technology, we know it has to happen. Do you have any tips for the how to reduce that fear, how to um, become more comfortable and confident with tech? Yeah, I think, um, hmm. can I ask a question back? Yes, please. Is this for someone who's building a tech business or for any business owner? Any business owner. Let's go to okay. that level. So I think there are a couple of things you can do. Firstly, um, one of the ways to look at it is what is the purpose of tech for you in your business? Okay. I think one of the reasons we find it scary is because it's almost forced upon us, right? Oh, you should have tech, tech this, tech that, tech that. And you're just like, ah, overwhelmed. And it's true, right? I, I myself said earlier, tech is no longer not an option. Yeah. But if you break it down to what's the purpose of it? Is it to distribute what I'm doing? Is it to scale my services? Like if you tie it back to a business goal, which is your comfort zone, then as, as an entrepreneur, I'm assuming <laughs> you can demystify what it's trying to do. It's not a magic bullet, right? Yeah. It is just a tool in the toolbox. Yeah. What are you trying to do? And then once you have that, you can have a really productive and effective conversation with different people about how they can help you get the tech into your business in a way that it fulfills the purpose. Yeah. And it might be in that process that you talk to someone and they say to your point earlier, oh, I actually, I do social media. I'm not a great copywriter. They might say, hey, I can automate a lot of things, but I can't build you this product. That's okay. But that way you're learning more as you go and you've got a really solid foundation to have those conversations with. I love it. Max, what, did, what is something I didn't ask that we should get out into the open right now? See, that's a good question and I'm completely unprepared for it. Um, I would say, uh, given also your specialty, I think the cost of tech is also an interesting question and one that people should probably um, be aware of. And then there's the opportunity cost of not using tech. Exactly. So Maxine, we just talked about the cost of tech and I talked about the opportunity cost of tech. How do we calculate that? That's a really good question. Because um, I think typically people think it's either very cheap or it's extremely expensive. And the answer is it's both. I think if you want to automate certain processes in your business and so on, it's a very cost-effective solution. And, and that speaks to your opportunity cost, right? If you get certain tools to automate and leverage processes in your business, I think, you know, you, you almost can't afford not to. Mm. But then there's also this notion of, oh, I just want to build an app. And, you know, if you want to build a good app, going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of 
one that really is intuitive and satisfies the need of the customer, et cetera, you know, you're looking at hundreds of thousands to get that built, dollars or pounds. And um, oftentimes people are like, oh, I, I didn't see that coming. And so again, think really hard about what you want it to do and why and what it's worth to you. How does it fit into your offering? What would you price it at? How would you want that margin to look like? Yeah. Uh, and then then you can kind of start estimating costs and seeing if it's worthwhile. I love that answer, Maxime. So thank you so much for joining me today to talk about all things tech. And we certainly covered the gamut. And I think the real bottom line here is today is to stay curious and stay stubborn. So much learning in this episode. Do you want more? I have a special offer for the right entrepreneur, a complimentary one-on-one -on -one coaching session that is all about you, your business, your goals, so you can accelerate the growth of your business and your wealth. Head over to wealthcoachingwithwendy.com and there you'll find a letter that details all the components of that call, how it will work and how to apply. Yeah, that's right. We're having an application because what we want to do is make sure that the people that we do have the one-on-one -on -one coaching with are people that we can actually help get ahead. And that way we're not wasting anybody's time. So head over to wealthcoachingwithwendy.com and apply today. Thanks.